So welcome to this workshop. Um, so it's my pleasure to introduce Audrey Trishke and Dr. Audrey Trishke, who is the, uh, right now a Mellon Postdoctoral Fellow in Religious Studies here at Stanford. We are very fortunate to have her. She got her undergraduate um, degree at the University of Chicago, working with people like Sheldon uh, uh, Pollock and Muzaffar Alam, and then a PhD at, <coughs> at Columbia University in the department with an impossibly long name, Department of Middle Eastern, South Asian, and African Studies. And after that, she was uh, a postdoctoral fellow at Gonville and Keyes College at the University of Cambridge before coming to us. And she will be talking about redefining re Islamic knowledge, Abu Fazl's Persian account of Indian learning. So please. Thank you very much, Shazad, for that kind introduction. And thank you to everybody here for joining me at this lunchtime hour for a kind of brief foray into the Mughal world. So in the late 16th century, a man by the name of Abu Fazl ibn Mubarak embarked on a mission to redefine the contours of Perso-Islamic learning. Now, Abu Fazl was certainly not the first man to try and leave his mark on this grand intellectual tradition, but his methods were highly unorthodox, and that he turned to Indian Sanskrit text in order to overhaul Islamic thinking. In so doing, he intended to shift the center of gravity in the Persianate world from over in the Middle East onto the subcontinent. This move could then inaugurate a new era of learning defined by cross-cultural knowledge. Excuse me. Now, Abu Fazl's motivations in this project were both intellectual and political. And that potent combination largely explains why we're still talking about his writing today, more than 400 years later. So in my talk, I want to unpack Abu Fazl's attempt to mark out new contours for the Perso-Islamic tradition. I'll argue that he developed a highly innovative vision of how Sanskrit learning could alter the terms <coughs> of both learned discourse and political sovereignty in early modern India. So I'd like to proceed today in kind of three major sections. I wanted to first talk a little bit about Abu Fazl, his writings, his political context, so a bit of background. I'll then look more in depth at the text in question, titled The Aini Akbari, or Akbar's Institutes. And in closing, I want to draw out the larger implications of Abu Fazl's work for Indian intellectual history, as well as Mughal political power. So beginning with a bit of background. Abu Fazl, our author, was active in the latter half of the 16th century, so 1550 until 1600, roughly. He worked under the support of the Mughal Emperor Akbar, a rather well-known king who ruled much of North India from 1556 until 1605. Now, Akbar is famous for many things, among them an interest in cross-cultural exchanges, and this is pertinent to my topic today. Here you can see a much reproduced image that's currently held in the Chester Beatty Library in Dublin. This shows Akbar engaging in religious debates with various people, including Jesuit priests, the unmistakable guys in black in the corner. They were visiting from Europe. But perhaps the single most pertinent thing to know about Akbar is his power. He was probably the richest man alive in the 16th century, and he ruled the most populous kingdom in the world at that point in time. So you can see the dark orange lines here show you the kind of very rough contours of Akbar's kingdom, encompassing portions of modern-day India, Pakistan, Bangladesh, and Afghanistan. Now, Akbar was interested in many facets of power. 
Number, a num excuse me, a number of scholars have ably discussed his battle skills, for example, that won further land for the empire. Also well-known and well-researched are his agricultural reforms that ensured a flush treasury. But Akbar also understood that while control of land and resources, these things will inevitably fade with time, written texts can ensure a much more long-lasting fame. Largely for this reason, Akbar generously patronized poets and authors, including historians. Now, historical writing had long been an intensely political genre in Persian. In fact, the primary goal of history in the Persian tradition, I would argue, was not really reporting the past so much as shaping the future. The primary audience for histories was generally royalty, as Abu Fazl himself once wrote. Likewise, the minds of most people, particularly great kings, yearn to listen to histories. All-encompassing divine wisdom has made the science of history, which offers examples to the wise, dear to their hearts, so that having taken advice from past events and counting it advantageous for the present, they pass their cherished time in things pleasing to God. So to harness this sort of power of the past, Akbar sponsored a series of chronicles to record events under the rule of both his father, Humayun, as well as Akbar's own reign. Over a few decades, Akbar commissioned no less than six official histories, each by a different author. And this is all before he finally found someone who could truly do justice to his imperial vision, Abu Fazl, who wrote the, the final and the defining chronicle of the period. Now, Abu Fazl, here seen in a 19th century image, was born in India to a learned family of Persian and intellectuals. He joined Akbar's court in the 1570s and soon rose to become the royal vizier. Now, as royal vizier, Abu Fazl held immense power and he did many things. But what interests us today is that in 1589, acting on royal orders, he began writing a history of Akbar's reign and then worked on it for the better part of the next decade, so throughout most of the 1590s. This history, titled Akbar Nameh, is incredibly long in Persian. It consists of three major volumes, and they're devoted in order to the exploits of Babur and Humayun, Akbar's grandfather and father, a chronological account of Akbar's own reign, and last, the Aini Akbari, a description of Akbar's royal institutes. And this final section is what I'll be focusing on today, the Ain. Now, the Ani Akbari is available today in a very nice printed edition. You can see the English and the Persian title pages here. It is worth mentioning, however, that early modern readers typically encountered this work in a far more ornate form. The Ain was often heavily illustrated and adorned. You can see some examples here, including a copy where burnished gold was placed between every line of writing. And I do apologize that the image is a bit fuzzy. I ripped it off the internet. Now, the Aini Akbari contains a vast array of information about Akbar's kingdom. The book is divided into five sections that address, in order, the royal household and courtly practices, the army and other imperial groups, administrative units of the Mughal Imperium, an account of India, including the learning of India, and last but certainly not least, the sayings of Akbar. 
you'll notice that this arrangement follows a kind of loose concentric pattern that works outward from Akbar's household until it encompasses the whole of Hindustan, both geographically and temporally, before then returning to the king himself in closing. This arrangement nicely reflects Abu Fazl's basic philosophy of kingship as centered in Akbar himself. We know little about whether the Ain was widely read in the 17th century. We really don't have a lot of evidence either way. But it was certainly a big hit from the 18th century on forward, really right up into the modern day. Early on, British colonialists latched onto this text for its remarkably detailed statistical information about India, by far the best available before the British Raj began their census. But before the colonial period, readers who cared about the Ain likely had another reason in mind entirely. In the fourth section, there is a portion titled Donesh Hindustan, The Learning of India, that offers something found in precious few Islamic works either before or after, namely a detailed primary source-based account of Sanskrit knowledge systems. Now, as we jump into this text, you'll see that Abu Fazl outlines a vibrant vision for ongoing infusions of Indian learning into the Persianate tradition. My primary guiding concern in investigating this text are understanding how Abu Fazl imagined this intellectual revolution that he wanted to ignite, its methods, and its legacy. So turning to the text itself, Abu Fazl describes his project as a comprehensive investigation into Indian learning, but with a fresh approach. This is how he opens the Danashe Hindustan. For a long time, my curious heart desired to spend some time on the nature of this vast land and record the learning of the wise among the Indians. I do not know whether affection for my birthplace, an investigation into truth, or describing reality has strongly inclined me towards this, because Benakati, Hafizé Abru, and other ancients have constructed false visions and written down fictitious stories. Now, Benakati and Hafizé Abru each wrote a world history in the 14th and the 15th centuries, respectively. In these works, they attempted to account for the entire known world, and so detailed Indian religious and philosophical ideas as part of that project. For example, here are two images from the same manuscript of Hafez Abru's world history that depict moments in the life of the Buddha, including his birth. And that's, that's the woman in the tree image over there. Now, in a similar fashion, Abu Fazl wished to address Indian learning as part of his mission to describe the entire Mughal kingdom. But he intended to, to exceed his predecessors in both scope and methods. And indeed, in terms of scope, Abu Fazl surveys an impressive range of subjects within Sanskrit knowledge. He details, the nine, he details nine philosophical schools, Sanskrit grammar, numerous technical sciences such as literature and music, Hindu religious beliefs, and social practices. Overall, the learning of India is remarkably detailed, stretching to several hundred pages, and modern scholars have often been duly impressed by the scarcity of heirs therein. He actually did a pretty good job. In rejecting the work of earlier authors as wildly inaccurate, however, Abu Fazl signals his intention to pursue not only new information, but also new methods. Some of his innovations seem unsurprising to us. 
For example, Abu Fazl attests that he relied on new translations of Sanskrit texts for his information, rather than simply recycling older Persian accounts of India. However, some of Abu Fazl's methods are intriguing and really quite surprising, beginning with his emphasis on Sanskrit vocabulary. Throughout his Donesha Hindustan, Abu Fazl introduces extensive Sanskrit terminology, which is transliterated rather than translated into Persian. Now, when he first introduces a Sanskrit word or phrase, he generally defines it rather briefly. Thereafter, he uses it without any gloss, evidently expecting his readers to very rapidly assimilate this Indian vocabulary. Now, as a result, so many passages contain so much Sanskrit as to be basically unintelligible. Take, for example, a typical passage from early in his text. This falls within the first philosophical school discussed, Nyaya, and addresses the stages of an Indian syllogism. Now, as I read this extended quote, note that I have reconstructed the Sanskrit forms in my translation, but you can see in the Persian that these terms appear as foreign, basically unpronounceable words. Avyayava is a syllogism, which has five members. Pratijnya is the proposition, such as there's fire on the mountain. Hetu is concomitant proof, such as smoke from which the existence of fire is apprehended. This is the basis of the syllogism, and it's known to have three types regarding the invariable connection. If the connection is positive, it is called kevalanvayan. If negative, kevalviatirekin, and if both, anvayatirekin. In the third kind, five things are necessary for a complete syllogism. Paksha sattva, where the thing is to be proved, where the thing to be proved is found in a given place. Sapaksha sattva is knowing where both the subject and predicate are certainly known, such as smoke and fire in the kitchen. Vipaksha sattva is knowledge that wherever the thing sought does not exist, the indicator also doesn't exist. Abadhita vishayatva is the non-negation of the object. And asatpratipakshatva means there is no other hetu negating what is to be proved. In the first type of hetu, the third of the five is absent. In the second, the second of the five is not found. Now, for the Sanskritists in the room, this is probably relatively clear. But for everybody else, I don't think it's that easy to follow. Nonetheless, Abu Fazl continues with a kind, this kind of dazzling density of Sanskrit vocabulary throughout his entire description of Indian learning. So this is not the exception. This is the rule. This style suggests that Abu Fazl wished to educate his readers not only in Sanskrit ideas, but also in Sanskrit discourses and terms for expressing those ideas. This proposition is further supported by Abu Fazl's emphasis on meticulously spelling out each Sanskrit word upon its initial usage. Anybody who was reading the Persian here, no doubt, noticed it in this passage. So for those who don't read Persian, this is the exact same passage, and what I've done is I've highlighted the parts where he's spelling out words with a sort of Persian longhand, right? So nyaya is with an N, a Y, a long A, this sort of thing. Now it's worth noting that very few other Persianate writers show any precision in their transliteration of Indian terms. Even in the direct translation done in Akbar's court at almost exactly this same time, these employed no standard system for expressing Sanskrit terms in the Perso-Arabic script. And this is despite the fact that these translations include thousands of transliterated Sanskrit words. In contrast, Abu Fazl's meticulous attention to spelling confirms his interest in the terminology in addition to the content of Sanskrit philosophy. 
And thus, Abu Fazl seemed to think that Sanskrit could be innovative in the Perso-Islamic tradition, beginning at the level of language itself. This striking claim makes a bit more sense if we look at how Abu Fazl treats the content of Sanskrit learning. And with this thought in mind, I'd like to now turn to Abu Fazl's discussion of literary theory. Now, the section on literature is a small part of the Dhaneshe Hindustan overall, but it deserves special attention for a couple of reasons. First, we can actually identify the Sanskrit sources for at least parts of this section. As I mentioned, Abu Fazl claims that he relied on translations of Sanskrit texts, and we have no reason to doubt this. That being said, identifying the precise sources has proven elusive, mainly because the information presented in the Ani Akbari was generally available in many Sanskrit works by the 16th century, so we just don't know which ones he might have used. The section on literary theory, however, contains a few direct quotations from Sanskrit poets such as Vishvanatha and Bhanudatta, and so comparative work actually becomes possible. Now, in his treatment of literature, Sahitya, Abu Fazl devotes the majority of his attention to the types of heroines, naikas, in Sanskrit, and more briefly, nayakas, heroes. The types of naikas and nayakas had become a topic of substantial interest among early modern Sanskrit thinkers, eclipsing earlier interests in things like literary tropes and funny poetic suggestion. Abu Fazl basically follows suit then in kind of emphasizing this aspect of Indian literature. Throughout his elaboration of the types of heroines though, Abu Fazl emphasizes the classifications of these figures. At the same time, he aligns the larger social context in which they were meant to be understood. You see, in Sanskrit poetry, a series of conventions and known storylines enabled authors to invoke an entire complex scene with a single verse. Take, for example, the secretive woman, the Gupta Naika, which Bhanudatta illustrates thus in his early 16th century Rasa Manjari, the bouquet of Rasa. Here I'm pairing the verse with an illustration of the same verse made in Udaipur in around 1650. So this is Bhanudatta's verse. Mother-in-law can rant, and friends condemn, and sisters-in-law reprove. How am I possibly to sleep another night in that house? The cat of theirs is forever springing out of a corner niche to catch a mouse. You see what all she's done to me with her sharp claws. Now, if you're not familiar with Sanskrit poetry, you might have missed the point of the verse. The idea here is that a young married woman has been spotted with visible scratches by her in-laws. The scratches are the result of lovemaking sessions with a man who is not her husband. So in order to conceal her infidelity, she then attributes her injuries to the house cat and complains to her family and friends about the situation. That's a very lovely verse in Sanskrit, which Abu Fazl translates this very verse into Persian, but he translates it into Persian prose to exemplify the same secret of Naika. And in so doing, he alters certain parts of the plot. This is Abu Fazl's account. Gupta conceals her conduct, covers her offenses, and skillfully hides her future intentions. She offers credible excuses, such that as she has been scratched by her lover's fingernail, she says, I cannot stay in this bedroom. A cat is running after a mouse and scratched me in the chase. Now note that Abu Fazl explicitly mentions that the woman's scratches come from lovemaking. This is merely implied in Panudatta's original verse, and it would have been easily inferred by all educated Sanskrit readers. 
In fact, to openly mention the woman's lover would be considered a flaw, a dosha in Sanskrit poetry that thrived on the beauty of suggestion. So while Abu Fazl makes this explicit, yet he doesn't name the family situation in which the woman need answer for her scratches, thus erasing the social context. We should also note that Abu Fazl makes no attempt to render this verse or any others into Persian verse or poetic prose. Instead of capturing the aesthetic beauty of the Sanskrit lines, he remains focused on merely accurately reproducing the catalog style information of the system. Accordingly, he lists the Sanskrit names for dozens of naikas, much as he did for earlier philosophical concepts, as we saw. But more often than not, Abu Fazl actually foregoes any examples, and instead offers only a brief description of each kind of woman. Take, for instance, in Sanskrit, the woman whose husband has gone abroad, Prashita Bhartadaka. She is depicted as so lovesick that she literally withers away. Bhanudatta gives this lovely verse as one of his examples, which I've paired here with a later image of the same Naika. Her garland made of fresh water lilies, her necklace strung with pearls, and the belt she wore, all left her the moment her lover Hari left. And there's one more thing to tell. Her armlet slipped down her thin arm to the wrist, poor thing, as if to see if any pulse was left. So here, the woman has become so thin from missing her husband that things full of life, such as flowers, have left her, and her clothes and jewelry hang on her frail frame. About this same Naika, Abu Fazl gives a short description that is devoid of any poetic quality. He says, Proshita Bhartarka, the husband has gone on a trip, and from his distance she is weak or thinking about leaving, she's distressed with fear. Now, other Indo-Persian authors who also wrote about Naikas provide a stark contrast to Abu Fazl's minimalist approach here. And as an example, I want to briefly digress into the 18th century with an author by the name of Azad bil Grami, who composed an Arabic treatises on Indian Naikas that he later translated into Persian under the title Bezlan Hind, Indian Beloveds. Unlike Abu Fazl, Bilgrami illustrates the different women with Persian verses quoted from some of the great masters of Persian literature. For example, speaking of the same woman whose husband has gone abroad, Bilgrami quotes this line from Sa'di. Sarban, ahestero, karam e jandad mahmilast, ushtaran rabbar badushast umara baradilast. Camel driver goes slow, for my soul rests in the caravan. The camels have a load on their backs and I on my heart. Now the imagery of a beloved's departing caravan was a common Islamic hit trope, but it had no connection whatsoever to the Sanskrit tradition. And Bogrami thus culturally translates the Sanskrit system of Naikas. Going back to the 16th century and thinking about Akbar's court more broadly, Literati often took such tactics in recreating Indian materials in Persian. For example, I've discussed elsewhere how the Akbari translation of the Sanskrit epic Mahabharata is filled with verses quoted from the great masters of Persian literature. However, in his Danishe Hindustan, Abu Fazl offers a straightforward list of naikas with terse prose descriptions that is really most concerned with reporting the classificatory structures of Sanskrit learning. Now, at the close of his section on literature, 
Abu Fazl offers what I think is really the crucial piece of this puzzle. And he directs his audience to go back to Indian traditions in order to learn more about this branch of learning. So after listing his dozens of types of men and women, this is what he writes. In this art, they explain all the behaviors of the Nayika and the Nayika in all different ways and offer many delightful stories. Everyone whose heart yearns should read the books of this art and he will find his heart's desire. Now this enigmatic comment appears to call for Ainyakbari readers to return to Sanskrit materials in order to unearth further texts on this topic. One has to wonder though if Abu Fazl honestly thought that this was a reasonable suggestion for most Persian medium readers. After all, Abu Fazl was one of the most well-versed men in the Sanskrit tradition among Islamic intellectuals of his day, and yet he was himself ignorant of Sanskrit. He actually relied on native informants for his knowledge of this tradition. Alison Bush, a professor at Columbia, has proposed that Abu Fazl may be referring here to Hindi texts on Naikas, such as Keshav Das's Rasika Priya. Hindi was a language known by many Persian speakers in India, and so these texts would have actually been accessible. Nonetheless, given Abu Fazl's own direct quotations of Sanskrit materials, the most straightforward, if difficult, reading is that he meant to direct Indo-Persian attention to Sanskrit works. Now, whether Abu Fazl meant to endorse accessing Hindi or Sanskrit text or both, this call has intriguing implications for understanding his intellectual project in the Dhanesh Hindustan. As I've discussed, Abu Fazl describes his work as a much needed correction to the Persianate tradition of merely recycling information about the subcontinent. But it seems that he intended his learning of India to serve as the starting point for Persianate encounters with Sanskrit knowledge systems rather than the definitive treatment of this subject. Thus, Abu Fazl sought to revolutionize the Indo-Persian tradition by placing cross-cultural projects and a sort of consistent return to Indian texts at its very core. To some extent, he offers his own text, of course, as a template. And yet, he simultaneously encourages his successors to access Indian learning in a far more direct manner than his own capabilities allowed. This long-term plan, however improbable it might seem, helps to explain why Abu Fazl introduces such heavy Sanskrit vocabulary and why he focuses on listing Sanskrit concepts. He intended to prepare Persianate literati to engage in ever more direct ways with Sanskrit thought. Now, Abu Fazl's ideas in the learning of India have several larger implications in terms of thinking about the Persianate and Islamic world in early modern India. And I'd like to highlight just a few of these in closing, especially as they pertain to Abu Fazl's intellectual and political ambitions. First, looking at the Ainyakbari a bit more broadly, Abu Fazl connects Sanskrit learning with Islamic and Mughal traditions. In book four of the text, after his learning of India, he offers two further sections. First, he discusses Islamic figures who have journeyed to India, beginning with Adam and continuing through the early Indo-Persian rulers and the Ghaznavids, and then culminating in Babur and Humayun, the first two Mughal kings. He thus draws a sort of long, continuous line that moves from Sanskrit thought through the Islamic tradition, and thereby connects traditional Indian learning with the Mughal Empire. 
Then, at the close of Book 4, he lists Indo-Islamic saints stretching back to the 11th century, including many Sufi figures. Here, I think Abu Fazl sort of completes the circle of Indo-Islamic knowledge by focusing on a truly hybrid tradition. In this vision, Sanskrit learning is not outside of the Perso-Islamic tradition. It's not something that needs to be incorporated. Rather, it's always been part of its historical heritage. In imagination, then, Abu Fazl's Danesh Hindustan represents a moment of great possibility in the Persian intellectual tradition. In terms of his actual reception, however, the idea of reformulating the Indo-Persian and Islamic thought worlds met with mixed success at best. Many writers over the next few centuries would bring Sanskrit and other forms of Indian learning into Persian. Such repeated transfers across cultural lines in the end did redefine the Persian world in India. And this is so much so that it's actually inconceivable to speak about 18th or 19th century Indo-Persian without talking about Sanskrit stories, Indian imagery, and the like. Anyone who came, who came to the talk two weeks ago saw that. But to what degree these later developments were inspired specifically by the learning of India as opposed to other texts, this all remains incredibly unclear. Nonetheless, the Ani Akbari is an important testament to what Mughal intellectuals thought was possible for Persianate and Islamic thought, particularly outside of the Arab world and Iran. For Abu Fazl, the heartland of Perso-Islamic culture was truly India, and this opened up a wealth of possibilities for its future as a multicultural tradition. Now, Abu Fazl's treatment of Sanskrit knowledge is also important because of its placement within this royal history. And this kind of imbues the entire project with a significant political hue. Illustrations of the Akbar Nameh even depict the key moment when Abu Fazl presented his masterpiece to Akbar, right? thus emphasizing the imperial reception of this work. This truly was a royal work written for a king. Now, when we consider this political context alongside Abu Fazl's emphasis on Sanskrit knowledge, one wonders if the goal, in part, was to somehow conquer India through accessing and claiming its classical learning. Perhaps this was the case, but it's useful here to draw just a very brief comparison with British colonialism, the period that followed Mughal rule and is a far better studied era of Indian history. Many scholars have pointed out that the British avidly pursued different types of systematic knowledge as a means of colonizing the subcontinent. Right? They did things such as sponsor grammars of vernacular languages, conducted the first census, so this, these sorts of things. Through these efforts, the British created new types of information that had previously been unavailable to anybody, Indians or Europeans alike. And they then used these previously unknown ways of defining the subcontinent to create an India that they could control and conquer. Now, in contrast, Abu Fazl doesn't generate any novel information in his account of Indian knowledge systems. Rather, he describes established Sanskrit learning to a fresh audience. Abu Fazl imports Sanskrit modes of discourse wholesale into Persian, and thereby hopes to alter the nature of Persianate knowledge irrevocably. Here, I think an approach far more nuanced than either conquering or appropriation was at work. As Abu Fazl attempted to make cross-cultural inquiries a necessary and a repeated part of Indo-Persian rule over Hindustan. Thank you.